Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Peter Kalizos, who's the Property Professor on the Property Planner, Buyer and Professor podcast. He's also an academic at the University of South Australia. Peter shares some information about his research fields in property investment. We talk specifically about gentrification and he runs us through a fantastic seven-step process for identifying property. We chat to him about housing affordability, the future of the property market, market and getting into developments as well. It's a fantastic interview with an industry heavyweight that I've been wanting to get on for a long time and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Here's Peter. Peter Kalizos, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Mike. The um, the invitation has been a little bit uh, of a long time coming, but I've actually probably more to do with the nerves, actually. You're a real industry heavyweight, obviously a very educated fellow, so I've been looking forward to, to getting on getting you on for a, for a long time. Oh, that's if, there's, if there's um, anyone out there that uh, hasn't come across you, Peter, how would you describe um, what you specialise in? So I, I am a lecturer in property. So I started off lecturing in valuation subjects uh, and now I've, I've moved on and am doing more property development town planning subjects. So I run the Master of Property at the University of Adelaide, which is focused on planning and development. And thankfully, I do some of that in my own personal life as well. So not only do I teach the theory of property and property development, but I also invest in property and do some of my own little developments. I love that. And they say that those who can't do teach, but you're actually (laughs) the exception to the rule. You teach development and you are actually an active property developer as well. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So to give us a bit of background on to, to young Peter, what were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? Uh, they probably been would have, they probably would have been music posters and they would have been posters of the Eagles and the Beatles. So now I'm showing my age, Mike. <laughs> the Beatles are universal, I think. Uh, they, they, they cross all generations, so I've got no issues with that. And uh, yeah, the Eagles Eagles perhaps haven't quite stood the test of time, but there's some still still some classics. What about um, property? How did you first get started in property, and what was your first investment, Peter? So I grew up in a real estate family because my father was a real estate agent. So other than dad just selling property for other people, we, he also invested in property. So from a very young age, we talked about property at the dinner table. I helped dad sometimes if he was renovating some of his own properties. Flipping then was very popular. I mean, it's popular now, but... Flipping then was very popular and very, very profitable. Uh, and so as a young lad, I would go and help him with whatever I could, not that, I, you know, not that I could pick up a power tool or do electrical work or something, but I was of some use to him. Um, and, and I think it's just through a process of osmosis without me realising it, a lot of this property knowledge just so didn't I did, didn't deliberately set out to learn about it, but just you know being involved in it every day um, certainly improved my knowledge of property investment. And Dad and the family generally stuck 
to uh, income producing property such as flats and units and commercial property. Yep. And my first investment was a group of three units in a small country town in South Australia called Ardrossan, which we still have. Yeah, beautiful. And that's a, that's a very good example of the buy and hold strategy at work. Mm. How 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 important do you think that I guess upbringing was? There's a lot of criticism about the state of financial literacy in Australia and the curriculum. You know, going through through secondary school doesn't necessarily set you up. Do you think that's that's an important thing that's missing with the average person? Yeah. Look, uh, before I was a lecturer, I was actually a school teacher, and one of the units of work that I developed was a unit of work called Money Matters for Kids, where I taught my students about budgeting and saving and spending and investing. Um, Because this is not explicitly taught in schools. And I think if they're trying to teach it at high school, it might be getting a, a little bit too late. So I think financial literacy is critical, the younger you can do it, the better. Because what we're finding is now, and some of my colleagues at the University of South Australia have done some research on this, it's our older people that don't really have an idea of some of the options that are available to them to help them retire or semi-retire. So the sooner we can get this financial literacy uh, into people, the better off we would all be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't subscribe to the the view that some people take. It's like, why am I learning Pythagorean theorem? You know, you can you can go too far with that. I think, but there's there's something missing, right? There certainly is. Some real world skills is what is required. Yep. Can you can you talk us through your academic career? What made you sort of want to go from being a teacher to the uni path, and 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 also what sort of key areas of focus you've had as an academic? Sure. So I knew I wanted to be a teacher from the age of 10 because I had a, I had a couple of fantastic primary school teachers. Uh, and then I started teaching and I, I, I was a school teacher for about 20 years. But just before then, I, you know, I sat down with myself and worked out. So, all right, you're almost 40 now. What do you want to do when you get to 60? Mm-hmm. And I just decided that the only thing I didn't want to get to the age of 60 and the only thing that I'd done was being a primary school teacher, even though you know, I loved it and there are still some things that I miss about school teaching. Um, I wanted to do something else. So I worked out, oh, what, are my, what are my interests? Well, my interests are property and teaching. So maybe I should start teaching property. <laughs> Makes sense. It's so I started off at what we call here in South Australia adult community education. So they're just non-accredited short courses that the general public can come along and and sit in. And mine were focused on property and investment. Uh, And then in the meantime, I went off, I went back to uni and did some postgraduate qualifications in property. Um, And then I scored myself a job at TAFE, uh, running a property investment course. Uh, and then I scored myself a job at the University of South Australia, and here I am now uh, at the University of Adelaide, um, still teaching property. Hence the property professor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good handle. Um, I wanted to ask you, Peter, one of the things that I've seen you sort of uh, 
comment on and write about quite a lot is is gentrification. It's obviously been a, a focus for you. Now, as a property investor, we sort of tend to understand that a gentrifying area, you know, is an area that's being beautified. It's it's going to have some some new development or maybe some you know new stores or pathways or whatever. But gentrification as a process, how does that impact? prices why is that important for property investors okay so first i'd like to make a differentiation so there's gentrification which is where the the buildings that are there are retained and gentrified or beautified Mm -hmm. as compared to say urban renewal where what used to be there which is typically say old warehouses are knocked down and apartments are built so if I can give some examples around the country, so in Sydney, so what you see at uh, Balmain is gentrification, but uh, what you see around Darling Harbour uh, is urban renewal. In Melbourne, yep. what you see at the Docklands is urban renewal, but what you see at Port Melbourne is gentrification. So. Um, the key here is that you're retaining the existing uh, buildings, not just dwellings, but other buildings, and they are improved. So um, gentrification impacts on property prices mainly because people are improving the property. So if you improve the condition of the property, you improve the price. Now, not all areas are right for gentrification. Generally, they have to be close to the city or the sea, and very importantly, they have to have his, uh, historical buildings, period character homes in particular. And what happens is most Australians love the older style homes, the older the better. They love the idea of getting in and fixing up those homes, putting on the extensions with a brand new kitchen and the brand new bathroom. Um, And that's one of the latter indicators of gentrification. But what you find, some of the early indicators, are it's the creative class that move into the area. The artists, for example. So it's a very rundown area, um, like Balmain used to be many, many years ago and Paddington in Sydney or uh, Port Melbourne uh, in, in Melbourne. So very rundown area. Creative class moves in because the rents are relatively cheap and then slowly but surely, and when I say slowly, it can take 20 to 30 years for an area to fully gentrify. Other people move in. They realise that, you know, for example, uh, Paddington, well, you know, Paddington might not have been an attractive area to live in 40, 50 years ago, but Paddington's pretty close to the city. Yes. Um, and then... You know, those sorts of areas become very popular, not just because of the beautified homes, but really because they are so close to the city or the beach. So that so that's an important that's an important consideration. People have got to sort of be happy with the commute times of an area to to want to invest money to to beautify it to to make these sort of um, heritage listed places you know modern inside and 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 pretty. That's correct. Yep. Yep. 
And and are, are all sort of gentrifications created equal? I'm just wondering, are there some magic components that make a difference? I mean, we we think about that quintessential hipster cafe makes it the you know the hub to go to, and then we get the the artsy types with their bound notebooks, you know, scribbling little uh, opuses or something like that. What 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 are the, some of the key things that you need for a for a really good gentrification to to happen that's going to have a positive impact on prices? All right, so the foundations are, as I mentioned before, you need older style buildings relatively close to the city or water. Yep. And then we, and then there's some what we call quantitative and qualitative indicators. So I don't want to bamboozle the listeners, but quantitative just means it's focused on the numbers mm-hmm. and qualitative means it's based on your opinion or your observation. And I wrote an academic paper a couple of years ago on gentrification. And my research showed that there are four key qualitative indicators. So first one was that there is a a greater than average decrease in people aged 18 years and under. So you can get these stats from the ABS. Yep. So most of them are are populational housing stats. Uh, There's the greatest increase in in couples without children. So those two things there tell us that gentrification is a childless process. It's not it's not like families are moving in and gentrifying. Yep. But it's generally uh, singles or more so couples with no dependents and have the money or ha- yeah, have the disposable income to spend on property. Another Dicks one is... Or whatever they're called. Yeah. Another one is it's the greatest increase in the people that lived at a different address five years ago. So what that's telling us is it's not the people that already live there that decide, suddenly decide to fix up their places. It's a new crop of people that come in. And typically, yep. it's old people that move out of these places that have lived there for 40 or 50 years. The house is run down, the area, the locality is run down, the young people move in. And I found this last one was quite surprising. It's the greatest increase in the percentage of females working in professional occupations. Now, professional occupations I can understand because generally people in professional occupations earn an above average income so they can afford to spend good dollars on fixing up property. Uh, But I was surprised that it was more so females rather than males. Now, some of the quantitative indicators, look, some of the qualitative indicators, you know, little things that I look for, like you mentioned, the hipster cafe. You know, if they're serving cafe, if they're serving coffees and you can have a choice of soy, almond or coconut milk, then that's a good indication that you are in a gentrifying area. You're well on your way. (laughs) If you're in an area or a pub that has craft beers on tap, then you're in a gentrifying area. One of the classic suburbs we have in Adelaide is called Theberton, where gentrification is well and truly underway. And there is a, a hotel in Theberton called the Wheatchiff Hotel. You won't find any pokies in the hotel. They only have craft beers on tap. So relatively expensive to have a beer there because they are craft beers. And they have a jazz band in the courtyard on a Sunday afternoon. So right. it's not... It's not a pub that has pokies, that has big screen TVs with the horse racing or the greyhounds racing or the footy or whatever. So very different types of 
of hotels. Um, generally, younger people, even if you look at the bicycles that they're riding, you know, the bicycles with the fancy handlebars, yeah. often single speed baskets. Sorry, what's that, Mike? Single speed. <laughs> single fixies. They're the one. Yeah, fixies. <laughs> yeah, that's very hipster. Yeah. So. Look, there are a few serious quantitative indicators, but there are other indicators that you can pick up just by observing um, that an area is improving and gentrifying. That's really interesting. And with, I suppose, those four points, one and four sort of linked together with a decrease in the people under 18 and, and number two was obviously the couples without children. And then right. number four with percentage of employed female, I guess they connect in that you know, these are these are people that potentially aren't having a family at all, or at least at, at that time. But it's, I guess, it's it's people with more disposable income moving into that area that um, are interested in, I guess, living in a pretty place and and having their almond milk and craft beer. That's right, and don't forget, uh, most one of the reasons one of the reasons that people want to be so close to the cities because that's where the highest concentration of jobs are. Yep. And all, and in particular, the highest concentration of professional jobs, white collar jobs. So that's why you get a lot of professionals that want to live close to the city because that's where a lot of them work. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, this is obviously if you can identify an area that's about to gentrify or is gentrifying, that's great. Do you think the rules will change in the future as the workforce sort of decentralises and we tend to work more from home or we'll still want to be a commute to the CBD in places like Sydney? Yeah, look, Mike, when I first studied my, uh, so I, my first postgraduate uh, degree in property was a graduate diploma in property. And back then, back in the 90s, they were talking about, oh, with this work from home thing, there'll be less need for commercial space. Uh, there'll be less traffic on the roads because people won't be you know, commuting to work every day. But I, you know, 20 years on, I haven't seen that. What I do see is uh, people, uh, organisations that, that, uh, that want to be in a commercial building, they want to be in a premium or A-grade building rather than an older-style building. So the demand for commercial space is still there, even though people are working from home. So I think what's happening, Mike, is it's not like we're working from home instead of working from work. We're working from home and working from work. Yeah, yeah. That's what's happening. And there's still going to be a lot of businesses that really want that that landmark space with the marbled entry and the view That's of the, right. the harbour yeah. or what have you as part of their image, I suppose. That's right, because so, it makes a statement for them. That's right. Yeah. So now that we know how to identify a suburb that we've just arrived in as as gentrified or gentrifying, how do we how do we see the signals of of something that's ripe for for gentrification that's likely to happen? Is it just a matter of looking at you know the distance to the city? You've got the beautiful facades, and it's just a matter of time, or can we get really specific with it and say this is you know got a time frame of six months, this one's five years? That it all varies because I, when I was doing my research, I looked at gentrification all over the world, or mm -hmm. generally all over the Western world, in particular uh, the US, the UK, and also here in Australia. And generally, gentrification takes decades from start to finish. Yeah. And it's not all rundown areas close to the city will gentrify because some of them may be, some of the areas close to the city may be full of 
uh, warehouses where there might have been heavy industry. So because there are no character houses there, it it's it's impossible for it to gentrify. Yeah. But um, over time, you will see, I mean, saying that all areas, all historical areas close to the city will gentrify is a big statement. But the vast majority will. So we can, I mean, I don't know how, you are, how old you are, Mike, but I can look back at suburbs um, many decades ago thinking, my God, who would want to live here? Yeah, yeah. And you fast-tracked it today. And, you know, those properties are combining million dollars or more because even though the buildings may have looked run, run down and the locality itself wasn't that good, because of the private money spent in the area through doing up private homes and the public money through either the local government or council or state government, the areas have have improved. And the one thing you can't change about a location is its location. You know, yeah. if, if it's two Ks from the if it was two Ks from the city fifty years ago, it's still two Ks from the city today. Exactly. And I think we can all think of examples like that. And if we did have a time machine on the way back to the Beatles concert live, we'll probably pick up a couple of little period homes in, you know, Balmain and Paddington and things like that and make an absolute fortune. Outside of gentrification, Peter, the the way you identify upcoming areas, you know, from, I guess, maybe a city point of view, moving down to the street levels, obviously sophisticated. Can you run us through how you personally identify areas for your portfolio? Yeah. So firstly, I need to say that all of my properties are in South Australia. Mm -hmm. Because I know the reason I do that is because I know my own backyard the best. And location is the most important thing in property and it's not just picking the right state or city it's also picking the right street or the right part of the street and i can do that best in my own backyard compared to doing it somewhere else doesn't mean that you shouldn't be looking at the state to buy but when what i would encourage people to do is it's a seven step process first step is look at look at which state you might be investing in so the property cycle plays a very big part in determining price increases and decreases. So when you do buy, you want to ensure that you buy in a state that is about to enter the upward swing of the property cycle. So the properties, if you're in it for timing, like you're only in for a short period of time, and in property short period of time might be five to 10 years, then you want to make sure you, you pick the right time in the property cycle. If you reckon this is going to be a 20 or 30 year hold, then the property cycle doesn't doesn't matter that much because you'll probably go through two or three cycles. So once you've picked your state, then you need to decide, am I going to stick to the capital city or am I going to look at towns, regional towns, or maybe even rural areas? So if we just keep it simple because we don't have you know lots of hours to spend on this podcast, Mike, if we just focus on the capital cities, then, you know, the simple thing to look at is, well, which cities have already had that upward swing? Considering that upward swings can't go up forever because that is unsustainable, then if, the, you know, if those two capital cities or three capital cities have had great years in the last two or three years, maybe I'll be, I should be looking at some other capital cities. Mm-hmm. So then that's step two. Step three is 
now you've got to pick your suburb because it's not just enough to say, all right, I reckon that Brisbane is the next place to invest in, so I'm just going to buy a place in Brisbane because Brisbane is a big area that has uh, well uh, about a million homes. So you need to select the right suburb. Some suburbs do better than others for a number of reasons. One of the main reasons is their proximity to the city and the water and great amenities and facilities are particularly important in our bigger metropolises like Sydney and Melbourne. So people need to do the research and pick the right suburb. As we've already talked about in this podcast, Mike, I'm particularly keen on gentrifying areas. Mm-hmm. So that, that's where I would stick. Um, so one, once once I pick the right suburb, and let's pick a suburb that I know really well that I've already mentioned. Let's say it's Theberton and Adelaide. So I've decided South Australia is the place to be. I'm only going to focus on the capital city because I reckon capital city properties do better than regional properties. Um, and I'm looking for suburbs that are gentrifying. Theberton is one of them. Theberton is one, maybe two kilometres from the city, got lots of character homes. But Theberton has lots of streets. So now I need to find the right street. And generally, we are looking for wide tree-lined streets uh, that have appealing houses. Generally, that means character houses. And ideally, the houses are set back from the front boundary. Now, in some of our bigger cities like Sydney and Melbourne, and in areas like Erskineville and Newtown and Enmore in Sydney, um, like the, the front of the house is right up to the footpath. That's okay, because that's the way they were built 150, 200 years ago. Yeah. But you need you look focus on the street. You need to have it to be wide, tree-lined. The most important attribute is that your street is full of other nice houses. Now, in Erskineville and Newtown and Enmore, you're going to find lots of narrow streets in the inner city suburbs, and that's yes. fine. But you need to look for streets that are, have a majority of character homes or period style homes. They may not all be fixed up, and that's okay, because the, the less of them that are fixed up, then the more there is to go for gentrification, which is not a bad thing. Um, so now I've drilled down to the street. So once I've picked my street, I want to pick the right style of property. So people have probably heard of styles such as California Bungalows, Federation, Edwardian, Victorian. The key here is to find period or character homes, which means these homes were built before World War II. So in, in each state, we have different names for our, our older style homes, but the build date you want it to be before World War II. The older, the better. Mm-hmm. Then we're looking for... So, so we found the right suburb, we found the right street, we found the right style of house. Then we're looking for size because size does matter in property. And here I'm talking about the size of the building. Uh, generally, three-bedroom houses are the ideal size property to buy as an investment because they are the most popular. But if you can't afford a three-bedroom house, that's okay. It might be a two-bedroom house, but you can easily see that down the track it can be extended if and when the time comes. And size also relates to the land. The, the bigger your block of land, 
the better off you're going to be because it's in property, property is made up of two components, land and building. And as you would know very well, Mike, it's the building that depreciates in value. So property prices go up. It must be the other component that helps it to go up, which is the land. So look at the size of the land. But I don't want people to think, oh, Peter said that you should go and look for a big block of land. So I know that 40 kilometres out from the CBD, I can buy a 1,000 square metres of land for $400,000, whereas if I come into the city, $400,000 is only going to get me 200 square metres of land. Mm-hmm. Remember, location is the most important thing. So you, depending on a number of factors here, and I'm speaking very generally, more than likely, the property that sits on 200 square metres of land, only a few k's from the city, is going to do better than the property that sits on 1,000 square metres of land, 40 k's from the city. Right. Yeah. And you've shared some great comments on that on your podcast as well, the property planner, buyer and professor with the, the um, land to asset ratio. Is that land the to asset ratio. Yeah. So the magic number generally that I use is 70%. So when you're buying a property, you, you've got to try and work out how much is the land worth on its own compared to how much is it worth altogether. And if the land on its own is worth at least 70% of the total purchase price, then that's a very good starting point. Because what you have there is 70% of what you're paying is increasing in value and it's only 30%, which I would imagine is attributed to the building, is depreciating in value. Yes. Beautiful. What's left? Is there one more? I've got six written down. All right. So I've got the state. The city, yep. The suburb, yep. The street, yep. The style, yes. The size, yep. And the what I call the soil because I tried to make them all start with S. I like it. Soil stands for land, so soil is really the land. That's the land. Yep. yep. Okay. So the seventy percent rule. Beautiful. Yep. I mean that that is a that is a a very basic yet exhaustive sort of criteria for drilling down. And that sort of leads me into my next question, really, because I I guess if there's any mission statement of this podcast, it's just to help the average investor own more than one property. And the stats are still saying that that's not happening. And I'm I'm wondering whether you see any particular reason why that's not the the case, because I think most people wanting to get into property are are likely doing it because they want to self-fund their retirement or fundamentally change their their, their lifestyle or the opportunities or the freedom is is something like this a great guide for them and and do you think that's the problem it's education or actually I'll let you answer it okay well I th- I think it's education a lot of people unfortunately get sucked in by slick marketing mm. and they go to these property seminars where they're selling off the plan apartments or brand new house and land packages and even though the person presenting shows them that they're getting a fantastic tax refund the only reason they're getting a fantastic tax refund is because they're losing a fantastic amount of money. Yes. So what I am finding, Mike, is that people are buying the wrong first property, which then doesn't grow in value. They don't have an increased amount of equity, which stops them from buying the second or subsequent property. Because generally it's the first property that's the hardest one to buy because you've got to save cold hard cash to do that so when we were all young 
and we were looking to buy our first home, we, we needed to save and sacrifice our lifestyle so we had money left over so we could put down a deposit. Now, if you already have one property growing in value, and let's just use some simple numbers here, Mike. So let's say that one property that you buy in today's market is $500,000. Yep. And let's say it only increases by 5%. Well, that means that it's gone up by $25,000. Now, many people would find it hard to save $25,000. Yes. So if you have one property going up, one $500,000 property going up by 5%, it might take you several years before you have, say, over $100,000 worth of equity, which might allow you to get into the next property. But when you get into the next property, and again, let's keep the numbers simple, and let's say both of them are worth 500,000 and both of them go up by 5%. Well, you've got $25,000 increase from one property, $25,000 increase from the second property. You know, at the end of that year, you've just made an extra $50,000 in equity. But if you were unfortunate and bought a property that either didn't grow that much in value or you bought an apartment and in some cases they go backwards in value, you know, your chances of buying a second property are very slim. And yes. if you do, it'll be way, way into the future. And just because I am an absolute spreadsheet nerd, I can tell you that a 5% growth year on year compounding on a half million purchase price gives you $275,000 plus of equity after 10 years. So, of course, if you've got something that's performing better than that or two of them, then then that's fantastic. I'm it guessing yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that also there's, there's one issue. There's the financial side of it. If people are buying the wrong asset that's not going up, they can't launch into the next one. But perhaps also a psychological one as well where they think that property investing is just not as good as it's made out to be. Yeah, well, I've actually written a book called Property Versus Shares. And even I wrote the property section. My share investment lecturer wrote the share section. And even as a property person, I can obviously see the advantages of investing in shares and the disadvantages of investing in property. So one of the disadvantages of investing in property is you've got tenants to deal with. Yeah. Uh, all right, so your property manager might deal with them, but in the end, they're going to call you up because they're going to ask your permission if they can spend money on fixing this thing up, which is what, what the tenant uh, broke, or the tenant's going to break their lease early, or uh, you might be really unlucky and get the tenant from hell. So what I, what I find, Mike, I, I, over the years of investing in property, some landlords just don't want to deal with that anymore. And they think, you know what, super is easier, or investing in the share market is easier. I'm not going to get phone calls from someone to say this needs doing, that needs doing. Um, the beauty about buying shares is there's no stamp duty. You can buy shares with as little as one or $2,000, whereas if you want to buy property, we're talking hundreds of thousands. So I, I can see why people think it's too hard. But you know, most of, the, most of the wealthy people around the world, whether they're mega rich, like the owner of Facebook or Bill Gates, or whether they're just you know, living comfortably, the vast majority of them became wealthy because of property. Yes. Yeah, and I think that the the rich list, you know, the Fin Review come out every year and they say, here's the rich list and most people on there have got something to do with property. Yeah, yeah. 
for sure. As, uh, in terms of, of your portfolio, and we, we had a, a brief chat before recording that you didn't necessarily set out to have a certain value or, or to be retired at a certain age, which, you know, you hear a lot about that on the, on the Facebook marketing cam- campaigns for buyers, agents and that sort of thing. But h- how would you define your portfolio today and, and what you sort of set out to, to get to? And were there any particular strategies outside of those seven points? Were you looking just on the capital growth or was, was servicing the the mortgage at a certain loan-to-value ratio where you were trying to, to operate? Well, in the early days of my investing, it wasn't uncommon to find positively geared properties because the rent compared to the purchase price of the property was very favourable. So, for example, I, I can clearly remember I bought a group of six units in Adelaide in the late 1990s for 272,000, that, oh, wow. that was all six of them. Today, each one would be worth 272,000. So I've got a confession here, Mike, you know, if I had my time again, there would certainly be some properties that I would not have sold. But at the time, it was the right decision because we have four children, we extended one of our houses twice and then we moved and bought a bigger house so the choice was either keep all our investment properties and we can raise these four children in our three bedroom, one bathroom house, or we're gonna sell one or one or more investment properties so we can live in a bigger house. And you know, I figured that look, providing we don't overcapitalize, then you know, if we spend a hundred thousand dollars on the extension and it adds a hundred thousand dollars worth of value then I really haven't lost much, except for obviously the selling costs of the investment property. Um, but at the moment, my portfolio is a combination of older style properties, again, following in my dad's footsteps, a group of units that provide a really good income and uh, new properties, which I built uh, and I'm keeping for what's very familiar with you, Mike, and that is the depreciation and tax benefits. Of course, yeah. But I guess you wouldn't advocate buying brand new necessarily and no, certainly no, no. not, not and just I'm, for tax reasons, but you're, yeah. you're, you're keeping those because you're getting them at, at wholesale cost as a yeah. developer, right? So a simple example for our listeners is if the land cost you 250 and the build cost you 250 it costs 500 yep. The developer's not going to sell it to you for 500 because there's no profit in it. Generally, a developer looks at 20% profit, so they're going to sell it to you at 600. Yes. If you can build and keep them, the tenant that you put in, they don't care how much you paid for or what it cost you. They're still going to pay you the same rent. But the beauty is your mortgage is based on a $500,000 spend, not a $600,000 spend. Um, And the depreciation is the same, whether you spent 500 or 600. So certainly building, literally building up your portfolio is one, only one great strategy. I wouldn't encourage people to only build and keep new stuff because new stuff doesn't grow much in value because generally new properties are on smaller blocks of land. But to have a balance of some good quality property that grows well in value, has a decent cash flow, plus some other newer properties 
which which help with your tax position, assuming you have a, a tax you know a tax problem, um, is a good dual strategy. There's a there's a certain idea that development is the is the pro- natural progression for a property investor. Obviously, you've got experience in it. You're a lecturer in it, so you're a great person to to ask the question. What are some of the ways that people can make that next step towards development if they've got their portfolio to a point where that's the natural progression for them? Yeah. So there are first. Oh, firstly, I've written a series of articles called Property Development One Hundred and One. So if people to Google my name and Property Development 101. They'll find that on a, I think it's called the Property Investor Magazine. So I reckon the website's tpimag.com. I've also, my most recent development uh, in a beachside suburb of Adelaide, I videoed so they could watch that series of videos. Again, if they... Google my name and Property Development 101 videos, they'll find them. If people are looking for books, I can highly recommend three books written by uh, Ron Forley. Forley spelled F-O-R-L-E-E. I'm actually looking at those books right now because they're in my office. (laughs) One's called An Intelligent Guide to Australian Property Development. The other one is Australian Residential Property Development. And the other one is Australian Residential Property Development for Investors. But if people can hang on for a little while, uh, Margaret Lomas and I are writing a book together on property development. So we are using a development that she's doing in the beachside suburb of Adelaide called Christie's Beach as a case study. And that will hopefully be out either late this year or early next year. Beautiful. There's some great resources and I can tell you firsthand that you don't even need to spell your last name correctly because I messed it up myself and you can still be found. <laughs> Very good. Very good. What, what about, I, I sort of wanted to talk to you about the sort of immutable laws of property investing. People sort of trot out the things like property doubles every year, that sort of stuff. Is there anything that we can take to bank, to take to the bank as a, I guess, a, a rule of thumb in property or, or, or has, has everything sort of changed or maybe those things were never really reliable to begin with? Well, I, I think that that particular one that you mentioned, property doubles every seven to 10 years, was true up until a few years ago. But since the GFC, things have changed. Like, again, I've done some research on this, and it is nationally, it has taken 15 years this time around for property prices to double. And I can see that this is most likely to continue because when property used to double every seven to 10 years, we had relatively high inflation, relatively high interest rates. Now, we have relatively low inflation, record low interest rates. You know, there is certainly no reason from a finance point of view or or a macroeconomic point of view that property prices will continue to increase at the rate they have. There may be other reasons. So, for example, if we change our foreign investment rules and allow anybody to buy any type of property in Australia, then our property prices will increase markedly because then the market for, let's say, established homes is not just Australian citizens, it's anyone around the world. 
in particular, rich people around the world. Yeah. Um, so I think, yes, property doubling every seven to 10 years was true up until recently. What you're going to see is a slowdown in property price increases, mainly because interest rates are so low and inflation is so low. Do you think also the brakes are on from the perspective of the sort of salary to asset value ratio sort of getting a little bit more out of control in places like Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, so I did, a lot of people talk about housing affordability and they look at just income versus house prices. That's a good measure to indicate how expensive housing is. But if you want to analyse affordability, you've got to also consider the mortgage repayments, which is heavily based on the interest, obviously the price of the property, but also the interest. So just to give you an example, Mike, in the year 2011, 48.7% of the annual salary went towards um, the annual P&I loan repayment. Yep. And then in 2012, it was 47.5%. 2013, 41.6%. Um, 2015, 38.6. So what is happening, and mainly because interest rates are dropping, it's actually more affordable to buy property today than it has been in many years in the past. Not every year, but uh, a lot of people say it's too hard to buy a property. I don't necessarily agree with that. I do agree it's much harder to come up with a deposit because the deposit, there's no interest to help you. You've just got to save cold, hard cash and you need to save a percentage of the purchase price of the property. But if we go back in time, so if we go back in time to when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and we looked at buying our first property, we had to come up with a 20% deposit. Yeah. Nowadays, people can do it with a 5% deposit. Yes, there's lender's mortgage insurance in most cases, especially if you don't qualify for the new federal federal government's first-home buyer's assistance scheme. Um, but, you know, we, we don't have to guess to, as to what's going to happen to Australian property, Mike, because we just need to look at what's happening in other Western nations around the world. Um to, to give us an idea of what is going to happen. And one of the reasons one of the reasons Australian property is expensive is because most of us live in detached houses. For those of your listeners that have traveled around the world and gone to places like Europe and Asia, most people live in apartments which are less than a hundred square meters in size and would have uh, land allocated to them of maybe less than 100 square metres. Mm. Whereas in Australia, most of us live in houses which are much bigger than 100 square metres in size, and the house sits on, on average, four, five, six hundred square metres of land. So there is no doubt our property is expensive, but that's because our property is big, the houses and the land. But when it comes to affordability, the saving grace at the moment is low interest rates. And I can't see interest rates increasing, certainly increasing rapidly anytime soon. And I say that is unfortunate because I know 
you know, paying really low interest rates great if you've got a mortgage. But the reason interest rates are so low is because the economy is not doing so well. Yeah, and incomes aren't growing as well, right? That's right. Yeah, income incomes are barely keeping pace with inflation. I think also part of the equation is the the centres that we live in. So if you take, for example, the United States, they've got a number of really large cities, whereas we've got a big part of our population in just a couple of cities and the, the middle of it we sort of keep empty as well. That that obviously combined with the density makes a big difference. Is, is that the future? You're dead right, Mike. So most of us in Australia live in urban areas and property in urban areas is more expensive than property in rural or regional areas. <coughs> so like you said, um, there's virtually no housing in the middle of Australia or you come in 50 k's from the coastline of Australia and there's hardly any housing, but that's not the same in, say, the US where they have properties from coast to coast or the UK or many other parts of Europe. And our major capital cities, those that have the biggest population, are on the coast. Mm. And, you know, that's got to attract a premium price to live on or near the water. And there's obviously the constraints of, of opening up more land. You can't go east when you're on the, on the beaches of Sydney and there's only so far you can go west without having the transport issues and people not wanting to go too far away. On, on that sort of on that subject of affordability, I think it's going to be a perennial one and I think we're likely to see investors sort of demonised uh, as we go to, to in the read, lead up to each election. Obviously, the last two were were pretty big on the subjects of, of, of negative gearing. Do you think that that is a, a policy that future governments are likely to take or, or after two sort of election losses with that policy, we'll actually be looking for different ways to address the housing affordability issue? Yeah, I think it'd be pretty silly to go again, especially, say, the Labor Party, as you rightly said, who have tried two different elections to bring it in. They lost both elections. I mean, this time around, they lost it not only because of the change, the proposed changes to negative gearing, but the proposed changes to people's shares portfolio, yep. uh, which affected mainly uh, retirees. So they had some big tax changes uh, proposed, but no, they're certainly not going to come with that third time round. One wouldn't imagine they're going to do that. What, what do you think the answer is from an affordability po- point of view? Is it the is the red tape for development and cutting back that? Is it, you know, is it, the, is it the stamp duty? Is it the, the development control plans around density? What do, what do you think the well, going forward there? Economics 101 says price is a function of demand and supply. So if you increase supply and demand stays the same, then price should decrease. But the problem there is supply takes so long. Like you can't just say, oh, we, we need another 10,000 houses and tomorrow there's another 10,000 10, yeah. houses. But on the demand side, <coughs> excuse me, we, you know, the government could come out tomorrow and say, oh, we've now extended the first home buyer's assistance where we guarantee um, and you don't have to pay lenders mortgage insurance to any eligible first home buyer as of tomorrow, well, as of tomorrow, the property market really picks up. Um, so I, what, what I can see is we're going to need a number of factors 
to help keep property prices at a sustainable level. So one is to make sure that it's not open slather for foreign investors to come and buy because as we saw in, uh, say, three, four years ago, uh, there was a lot of foreign investors buying in particular established property, which forced uh, property prices up. Uh, people are going to have to get used. People aren't going to get used to living in smaller houses because the smaller the house, the smaller the, the price. But people are going to have to get used to living on smaller blocks of land. Yeah. And we're already doing that, you know. You know, the old adage is we used to live on in a three-bedroom house on a quarter acre of land, which is a 1,000 square metres. But now many of us are living, our houses are actually bigger, but we're on smaller blocks of land. So we're going to have to live closer together. There's going to be higher density. But one thing I am noticing, and because I deal with young people every day at uni, and many of them are property students, but many of them are not, is that a great, the great Australian dream of owning your own home is not as strong as it used to be. Right. What I am seeing, seeing even from my property students, who you would think would know enough about property to understand that they need to buy it, even if it's just their own home, they are willis, willing to sacrifice owning a home if it means that they have to live a long way from the city. They would prefer to rent close to the city facilities and amenities than own further away. And I can't see that changing. I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but one of them is also, it's the the lack of uh, permanent jobs. So when I got my first job, it was like for life. But nowadays, there are less and less in those jobs. So people more working on contract basis, casual basis. So it's very hard for them to get, to qualify for a mortgage anyway. Um, but they're all also lifestyle reasons. People want the ability to be able to go to the beach whenever they want, their favourite cafe, their park, ideally not driving to it, rather than living a long way out from town and driving on the freeway to for their recreation, whatever that might be. Yeah, I think that's something that I've observed as well. Housing maybe is not necessarily by definition affordable across the country, but if you want to live in Bathurst, say, there might not be the opportunities there and people want to be able to be in the city with the amenities. I mean, it's not enough to have Domino's delivered now. You want to be able to have Vietnamese and Ethiopian at your disposal. That seems to be um, where, where people are at these days. With, yeah. with with those sort of things in mind, what, what are your outlooks for the property landscape in 2020? And, and can you sort of point to some potential growth areas, even if we, we go to the macro sort of state and, yep. and city level? So I think 2020 will be a better year than 2019. Um, 20, the, the big break on the economy and the property market last year was the federal election and the proposed changes to negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount. So this year we don't have that. So I can see nationally our property prices will do better this year than last year. That doesn't mean that every capital city is going to do well. Um, if you're looking at, if we're looking at the macro, I reckon the three capital cities to watch out for, not just for this year, because most people aren't going to buy a house this year and sell it within 12 months. Yeah. But for the next few years, 
it's all ABC. I would say Adelaide, Brisbane and Canberra, because Sydney and Melbourne have already had their big growth spurt or spurts in property prices. Perth, I'm worried about because the price of iron ore doesn't seem to be moving up at all, mainly because demand for Australian iron ore hasn't picked up that much. Darwin is also very heavily resource based and that's, you know, I don't see much changing in the foreseeable future. Um, who else we got? Hobart also had big uh, growth spurt. So just based on the property cycle, I'd be going Adelaide, Brisbane or, <coughs> excuse me, Canberra. Canberra, if you're looking for more specifics, the two suburbs that I know reasonably well that uh, would be Narrabunda and Braddon. But again, you're looking to buy a house there, not a unit. And in Adelaide and Brisbane, the, it's the same principle. Closer to the city, the better off you are. Beautiful. And it sounds like drinks could be on you, Peter, with Adelaide at the top of your list being, <laughs> being all in yourself. Careful, mate. I've been talking about Adelaide and Brisbane for the last 10 years and they've done almost nothing. Um, but Adelaide is looking good with the new defence contracts and also the uh, aeronautical uh, industries. A lot of them are moving to actually just across the road from the uni where I teach Um so space is look, looking to be a very big growth area globally. You know, I reckon, Mike, by the time you and I are, you know, sitting in the old age home, I reckon sp people will be able to afford space travel. That doesn't yeah. mean, you know, flying to the moon and walking around, but to get out of the orbit of the Earth, have a look at the Earth from a long way away and come back in, I reckon there'll be people doing that. Mate, we'll get a bus trip from the nursing home organised and go and have, go and have a look ourselves. Pete, um, thanks very much for sharing your wisdom today. It's been fantastic and some great, um, really great easy tips to, to follow for investors that are either beginning or building their portfolio. If people have got any more questions or they want to get in touch with you or, or check out your resources, what's the best way to do that? Uh, people can email me at peter.kalizos at adelaide.edu.au. That'll be the, the first step, and then we can uh, go from there. Or if people are looking for articles that I've written, if you just Google my name and a topic, you know, it might be tax or finance or development, uh, because I, I have written many articles for News Limited and realestate.com, uh, they'll probably find something there. Yep, and if you throw a K, a couple of U's, uh, an O <laughs> and a Z in it, you'll get close enough. Yeah. Um, Peter, if there's if we can sort of finish with with a sort of a standard question, we ask if there's one piece of advice for property investors that you could give, what would that be? Set your goals. There is no point in looking for property unless you've worked out what you're trying to achieve. Do you want to retire richer? Do you want to retire earlier? Do you want to work part time? Do you just want to earn some extra money from time to time, or do you want to give up a day job? Or more than one of the, of the five options. Once you've worked out what you are trying to achieve, then that will guide you as to what you should buy, where, Great advice. There's so much noise about the, the shiny property, but you know none of that really matters if it doesn't fit with your strategy. So I think that's, uh, that's really great advice. But thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Mike. I've really enjoyed it. Cheers.